Genre. Welcome to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Minute, the daily podcast where we are talking about the 1990 and 1991 Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movies one minute at a time. I am your host, Scott Tofty. With me again for this very special episode are our panel of turtle co-hosts, Chris O'Connor. Oh, I'm so excited. Adam Sheehan. Hello. And Rachel Gatlin. Hi. And on the phone, all the way over on the Weast... West West Coast. West Coast. Very special guest. You might know him as the pizza guy from Turtles 90. You might know him as April O'Neil's neighbor from Turtles 2. But most importantly, I think you probably know him, at least in the Turtleverse, as the guy inside the Michelangelo suit. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Michelin Sisti. Hello, everybody. Hello. How are you doing, uh, sir? I'm, I'm sorry. Let me take let me take that again. Cowabunga, dude! Hey, <laughs> there, it is. there we go. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute, we're live. We're not doing takes on this, but that was perfect. We'll go with it. Uh, Michelin, thanks you so much for joining us here on our podcast. We are so happy to have you. My pleasure. Um, we have been watching these movies. We did an entire season on the 1990. Uh, Steve Barron movie, and we are about, as of recording this, about a third of the way through Secret of the Ooze before we get to Turtles 3 eventually, and we have spent so much time analyzing every little puppetry nuance, every little line giving, every little cameo spot. Um, We feel like we know you already. (laughs) Well, you do. Well, we do, but... At least least you know me in the Turtle universe, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, and that's... That's exactly what got me interested in, in talking with you guys and girl, because uh, not everybody is doing that kind of thing, at least in my experience. And I kind of <laughs> like the idea of taking a minute and delving into it and giving your opinions about stuff and, and conjecture and everything else. I liked all of that. Ah, well, thank you. Um, so it's a couple of general questions to start with. Um, what has the Turtleverse been treating you like recently? I know the 35th anniversary of the entire franchise is coming up. Are you still involved in the, in the fan community? Do you do conventions? Do you get recognized? I still do con- some conventions. Uh, I've had to limit my schedule a bit uh, uh, with the circumstances here, but in fact, I'm going to the, uh, what is it? The um, Get Geeked in Lansing, Michigan sometime, Ooh. I think in, in June or July, something like that. Yeah. Awesome. Um, I was scheduled to go to one in Germany uh, in the interim, but uh, things have changed, and I can't go to that one. So, yeah, I am still doing the conventions, and that's really – I didn't do them for the longest time because I didn't like the idea of selling my autograph when everybody wanted me to sign anything. I would just sign it. I'm happy to do so. But uh, it was impressed upon me by the people who were friends first (laughs) and then later became my representation that – this wasn't about me. It was about you guys and the fact that you guys wanted to meet me guys and that I should do it. And I did, and I loved it, and I've been trying to do it whenever I can. Are you at all surprised that, you know, we don't really get to see your face much in these movies. For someone who's inside a rubber suit, I mean, we have a lot of love for all the actors in the suits. Do you feel that from the fan community? Absolutely, and that's why I uh, do more than just the the first uh, toe in the water, so to speak, because 
in speaking with the fans, that's the best part of the whole trip as far as I'm concerned. I mean, the work was a pain in the ass and really hard. <laughs> and uh, the stuff that it led to, of course, turned into 30 years of a career, which is kind of nice. But really, the, the joy is in talking with you guys. Ah, well, again, we are super happy to have you. We also appreciate all the flexibility. We've been trying to schedule this for a while, and it's been a nightmare trying to get a date that everyone could get available. So thank you again for being flexible with scheduling. Uh, Just thank you for everything. Let's talk about uh, before Ninja Turtles. What what was going on in your life uh, as, as a kid? Where did you grow up? What kind of stuff were you into? Were you like a comic book kid? Were you into movies? Um, well, I, I saw that question on your list, and I was—I would guess I was typical in my devotion to to comics and superheroes for, for any kid my age at that time. But I wasn't a hardcore fan, and in fact, there weren't a lot of hardcore fans around because there weren't a lot of places that they could express themselves. Of course, now that—that's all changed. <laughs> but because I was an army kid. My favorite comics were the Sergeant Rock comics. Those were, the, those were my favorite. Uh, I don't even know if they still have Sergeant Rock, but that was what I read all the time. I liked Mad Magazine, and I liked, um, I guess on the more plebeian side, I, liked, I was a fan of Superman and Archie comics. Archie comics would just impress the young girls. And uh, yeah, it, was, it was kind of a typical kid. Well, Chris, you're, you're an Army kid, right? Yeah, Army Brat, and and um, I I don't think Sergeant Rock was still around. Like I remember going on base in Germany, and uh, I would definitely I got all the GI Joe comics. Like that was uh, that was big for me as a kid. Um, but because uh, you know it's like ah oh, dad dad's going this is what dad does dad you know uh, shoots guns out of robots hands and uh, and stuff like that. <laughs> but uh, I used to, I used to ask my dad when when did you last shoot a robot dad? <laughs> God, I wonder what Precisely. his answer was. Yeah. Um, That's classified, it, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, the G.I. Joe comics, actually, Sergeant Rock was a part of the G.I. Joe comics. Oh, that makes sense. They that had a small universe, sense. but that, yeah, he was, he was a big part of that. Yeah. So what, by, the, by the time I was around for, for that stuff, they had, they had gone full G.I. Joe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And Sergeant Rock wasn't as popular as he once was. <laughs> Um, what got you into the, the line of work that led you to Turtles? Was it traditional uh, puppeteering, or did you go to film school? No, not in the least. Uh, I, was a, I was a Broadway actor. Oh. Uh, I, oh. I had started in music and then transitioned to theater and was making my career in theater. I was in New York for 20 years. Uh, I'd done five Broadway shows at that point. Uh, I I fulfilled all the dreams that I had, and that's what I was going to do. Uh, right. So I was very old and and, uh, and an old New York guy. And then uh, Steve Barron came along and changed all of that. <laughs> uh, I got the audition to, to read for Steve initially, actually Lynn Kressel, Lynn Kressel first, and then she passed me on to Steve um, because of some of the work that I'd done on stage. Some of the work I'd done in, in uh, a couple of the Broadway shows and even other shows that I'd done as well uh, involved some suit work, uh, some off, the, off the, uh, the grid type of characters a lot, and even something as, as simple as crawling inside the crocodile suit for one pass in Peter Pan. Oh. So 
I had I had a bit of a reputation in the theater world, in the New York theater world, of being somebody who would do these kind of things, because not everybody would. Uh, and that's how I got the initial audition. Uh, one of the other casting directors, theater casting directors, who knew of my work for years, had uh, recommended me to Lynn, and then she brought me in, read for her. She passed me down the hall to Steve, meeting him for the first time, Steve Barron. Mm-hmm. And then he had me come back the next day with, a, with another piece. Excellent. I have one question to ask before we jump into the turtle stuff specifically. You said that you started in music in New York. Was that specifically musical theater, or are you a musician as well? No, I was a musician first. Uh, I started out in, in music, and in fact, uh, that's how I put myself through college and uh, paid for all that stuff. And then, uh, do you mind I, if I ask? Spe- like, I am I am a music education uh, person, so I am a, I'm a middle school music teacher in my you know my secret identity. So this this piques my interest uh, a lot. So what what exactly well, were you doing well, in college? First of all, good on you for that. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I I had started out. My my mother always wanted us to have music. Uh, she sang all all around the house, uh, and so my brother got roped to the first. He started on the accordion. Then later on, I got started on the accordion. That led me. Let's see. I went from accordion to single reeds, clarinet, saxophone then double reeds, oboe, English horn, then taught myself drums and started doing jazz and, and rock and blues. Oh, man. And that, that, that's what paid to get me through school and was even doing some studio work even when I made the move down to New York to start my theatrical career in earnest. I was still doing some side gigs in music. And then after a time, that passed to second phase, and I would just do it for my enjoyment after that. Do you still play? Uh, I still play drums. I still play lots of rhythm instruments, and I could squeak out about a five minute on a, on the oboe, but my lip would not last longer yeah, than that. My oboe chops are <laughs> are not great, but I'm also a drummer by nature, so I have to ask, what kind of drum set do you have? <laughs> oh well, I went through a few. Started on Kent, which was the local ah. set that you had in uh, Western New York, and then wait a minute, uh, wait a minute, uh, wait a minute, wait a minute, Western New York. Yeah, I'm from Buffalo. What? I went to college in Fredonia. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. And I went My girlfriend is from Buffalo. Buffalo. <laughs> You're so a UB well. grad. I, All right. You must, be, you must be a hardy guy if you have a girlfriend from Buffalo. We don't mind the cold. That is true. <laughs> Wow, <laughs> I got a you guys Polish are now speaking a language I don't understand. Uh, yeah, I think well, me and Michelle and Sisti just became best friends. <laughs> yeah, it's, usually, uh, it's usually a language with a very flat A, so you want to learn that. I've gotten used <laughs> to the flat A's from Scott. <laughs> yeah, I'm tone deaf. Oh well. man, so Anchor Bar or Duffs? Oh, Anchor Bar. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> always, always with the steamers at Anchor Bar. All right. Yeah. We, can, oh, we can still be friends. I'm a Duff's guy, but that's okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so musician, uh, Buffalonian, uh, and then you're a New York dude, musical theater, and you get this audition for Ninja Turtles. <laughs> Did you have any idea what Ninja Turtles was when you got this audition? Not in, not, not in the least. In fact, when my agent called me with the audition, we laughed because neither <laughs> one of us had ever heard of it. Uh, we didn't know what it was, it, but he said, hey, go, go to the audition. And I said, okay. And that's how I did it. <laughs> wow. So it, I, you it must is have... a funny name and it definitely tells you everything you need to know. <laughs> it is. <laughs> it, it caught my attention. 
Um, what portion of the script were you auditioning on? Did they just give you sides, or did you get to read the whole thing? No, we just had sides to start out with, and they were both uh, Raphael sides, the, the one that was sent to my agent, and then after Steve read me, he gave me another Raphael side to come back with the next day. Awesome. So were, were you auditioning for The Voice, or were you auditioning specifically for suit work? Uh, I didn't know. Oh, okay. I did not know. I mean, I knew that the reason that they knew of me was because of work that I had done on stage and some of it in suits. So that led me to believe that that was the side of the coin that I was there for. But in the end, the, the voices were a, a very fluid thing anyway. Mm. Now, as it turned out, as far as using voices on set, I'm assuming you had to deliver lines on set, right? I always spoke my lines inside the head, except when it was time that would interfere with recording, in which case I would mouth the words to myself. Uh, but uh, my puppeteer, Mac Wilson, the, the finest in the world, uh, he would speak the lines. Of course, he was speaking the lines with an English accent. So <laughs> oh, man. It was it, it was all going to be looped anyway, so we knew that. Now, <coughs> oh, <laughs> there's that chess cold we were talking about. <laughs> uh, that was me. Oh, that was Chris. Okay, <laughs> but yeah, same thing. <laughs> um, so so you're sitting inside this turtle suit and you're you're speaking your own lines. I'd, I'd kill. I would kill to hear Michelangelo with a British accent. Um, <laughs> I mean, it, I, it I love actually, it. It's actually pretty cool. I, I would imagine. I, I also loved your uh, dialogue. Well, I guess you would call it a... I guess it's dialogue. You have to talk to somebody else in the movie. Your, your Brooklyn 122 and an 8 that you give in the first movie. I would have loved to hear Michelangelo in that voice, too. I think it would have been great. <laughs> well, that was kind of what I auditioned for the voice with. And they said, no, you're too old. And over the years, of course, I, I met Robbie and, and know him, uh, at least in passing. And he's a very nice guy. And I thought to myself, his voice wasn't that much younger than mine. <laughs> <laughs> also, like, what, what, what really defines a young or an old voice? Do I just uh, have the producer? The producer's <laughs> Yeah, okay. I bet I have the voice of a 12-year-old. I wouldn't disagree, Chris. <laughs> use, it, use it for as long as you can. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying. Voice of an angel, I always say, Chris. <laughs> no, you don't. Don't say that. <laughs> um, so you get this script and you get the part, and what are what's going through your head? You you have to read the script. It's this crazy thing about giant lizards walking through New York City sewers, fighting ninjas, and they're gonna bring you down to what North Carolina to shoot this thing, right? I didn't know that at the time yet either. But yeah, that was the plan. Okay. What were your impressions of the script when you got a chance to read through it? Uh, I liked it. I liked it a lot. Um, by the time the script arrived, I had been given, uh, well, how many? I guess about a half a dozen of the original black and white comics to read. Uh, and in particular, uh, Kevin and Peter sent us uh, uh, the original uh, uh, issue as well. They said yeah. that's, that's kind of the Bible for them. So that was all material that I had laid in by that time. So I knew and I had a reference and I, of course, watched uh, what there was available of the animation by that mm -hmm. time. Uh, watched some of that. So I had an inkling uh, a lot more than uh, the day that I auditioned. Uh, and when the script showed up, I thought, this is pretty cool. This is keeping with the, the darker quality of the original intention. 
that uh, Kevin and Peter had, and I like that. I like what Steve, his, uh, his notations that he sent along with it. I liked his ideas a lot. And, uh, yeah, I was, uh, I was all for it at that point. Uh, of course I was also committed to it. So I had to be all for it, but uh, yeah, I, I was, uh, I was eager to get going. We, we talked to Steve a little while ago. He was awesome to sit down and talk with us through a myriad of technical problems. But one of the things that he mentioned is using the comic books basically as the storyboards for the film, which we always thought was very cool. Did he actually send you the, the comics to read when you were prepping for the film? Yeah. Well, I don't, I don't know if he personally sent them, but production did. Yeah. Okay. Uh, they, sent, they sent us, I, I, think, I, I think there were three or four of the original black and whites. And then later, when we were on set, Peter and Kevin gave us signed copies of the original issue for each of the guys. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, I hope you still have it. That's worth some... Oh, oh, yeah, I still have that. The the comic book collector in me just perked up. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. It's the the only comic book I still have of any (laughs) that I have owned ever in my life. It's the only one that I still have. Hang on to that. (laughs) Um, So you get down onto this set and they... What is the pre-production like? Are you there for costume fittings? I assume those suits have to be pretty custom molded to you, right? Has to be a lot of yeah. Fans. They 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 flew us to the London shop for the for the body molds. Uh, that was an experience in and of itself. And then when we got down, uh, we let's see, we had uh, six months of training with our sensei in New York for our individual weapons and group uh, battle. And then we had, uh, let's see, then we had two, two weeks, I think it was. Yeah, I think it was two weeks, if I recall correctly, down in North Carolina. By that time, uh, they, the, the creature shop had set up down there, and all of the people who were going to be dealing with our suits. We each had, uh, I think it was 13 suits each wow. for, the hero, for the hero set. And then the, the stunt oh, guys crazy. had, I think, I think the stunt guys had six suits each. Wow. Uh, yeah, there there were a lot of there was a lot of latex down there. <laughs> um, that must have much... smelled awesome. <laughs> uh, I'm just that what I said. That must have smelled awesome. Uh, at All times, that. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, how much martial arts work did you get to do in the films? Oh, we had uh, we got to do a lot. The, the basic rule was anything that wouldn't endanger the head the animatronic head, uh, give you an illustration of that philosophy. In, in Turtles 2, we were shooting uh, the bit where Razor spins Mikey around and tosses him into a wall right. in, the, uh, in the junk or cement yard. And we were doing the POV, Razor's POV of Mikey, and they had set up a rig. It looked like a, a helicopter blade, so that I was lying on one blade strapped to the thing, the camera was in the middle in the fulcrum, and then there was a counterweight on the other end, on the other blade, as it were, and they would spin it around. So it looked like, like Razor's POV as he spun Mikey around before he let him go. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, said, okay, now yeah, that's a worthwhile shot. Let's do that. So they had me in this little tray lying down on my stomach in the tray, and then they had a strap going around me. And then after about the second, third, fourth take, <laughs> they got brave. They got braver, and we got faster. <laughs> and eventually, the strap broke, and I got flung about twenty feet. Oh, jeez! Oh, oh no! Tumble, tumble, tumble! Crash, 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 crash! And half of the people who were running toward 
the incident were saying, is Misha okay? And the other half were saying, is the head okay? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that man. gives you an idea of what the priorities were like. Well, so, uh, but yeah, I that believe was it was... Thumb. If it was something that wouldn't endanger the head, we had carte blanche. If it was something that would endanger the head and we lobbied hard enough, they'd let us do an insert shot in the stunt head. So we'd oh. do everything with dialogue and the animatronics up to that point. And then we would have a separate shot where we would do the gag or the fight bit in the stunt head. If it was something that was ruled out of bounds and it would, would endanger too much, it would endanger the head first and then possibly us. <laughs> then they gave it to the, uh, the uh, uh, martial arts stunt guys. Hmm. And, of course, the major choreography was all with them because they had such ridiculous skills. It was amazing. Uh, that, you know, you, we, uh, on those days, if we weren't shooting somewhere else, I would come by and just watch because it was so cool to see. Now, did you get to interact with Ernie Mays Jr. a lot during that first movie? Uh, and during the first movie, yes, but more so in the second movie because he was yeah. playing Keanu. Yeah, obviously. Yeah, I, I mean, he must have stood out at some point to in, get a, you know, on-camera role in the second one. He was... You know. Oh, when he was always destined for that. Well, when they brought him in, they knew they were going to use him, especially uh, not only because of his dad, but also because yeah. of his own training and his own accomplishments. Yeah. yeah, and it was well worth it. I mean, he was uh, he was a phenom. Uh, he's he killed it in everything. I particularly mm. love Surf Ninjas, but uh... <laughs> <laughs> um, I didn't see that one, but I'm sure he was great. I just I knew it mostly because the commercial for it was at the beginning of the Ninja Turtles 2 VHS tape, I think. Mm. Oh, okay, so there you go. It's all connected. Um, <laughs> so you get on verse. set, you've done your training, you're shooting. What is a typical day like in a giant foam latex turtle suit? Hell. What, what time do you only start? Imagine. Oh, well, that would, that would vary, but usually your day started about 4 o'clock. Uh, the, the, um, during the, when we, in the first show, we learned our lesson before the second show. In the first <laughs> show, we were staying at motels on Wrightsville Beach uh, and then commuting to the studio, and that was, uh, that was not the right idea. What we learned and then rectified in the second show was that we rented beach properties on Wrightsville Beach. Hey, there you go. <laughs> did not have to deal with the hotel. It was much, 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 much better. But yeah, usually around 4 o'clock uh, so that you get to the studio between, de- depending on what your preparation was in the morning, uh, quarter to 5, 5 o'clock. From the first, you're going to be camera ready, first shot, usually 6, 30, 7 o'clock. So that interim period was spent uh, in some last-minute rehearsing, but always in preparation for the work that was coming for the day. Um, I wanted to ask about rehearsals. So I have to figure that a lot of acting in the suit, especially with a puppeteer working the, the mouth, like you have to make sure that you're looking the right place when the line is said. and the pup, Like there just has to be this incredible choreography going on. How much did you guys – how much time did you spend working on – uh, the choreography between you and the, the animatronic puppeteer and the other actors on set? All of it. It was the <laughs> essential item that we had to deliver. If we didn't deliver that, we didn't have a movie. I just, it had to be, uh, that skill set to me blows my mind. Adam has done a little bit of puppeteering work 
Um, Adam, I don't think you've ever been in a suit for a production. Uh, I was I was in a suit, no, nowhere near turtles level, but I, I was in a suit once for for like half a day. Is that when you were Elmo? Anybody, anybody, no, that's a different. Anybody in a suit can lay claim to having done suit work. Period. <laughs> yeah, I, it was uh, the thing that only eats ponies. Oh right, right, um, right. In Anadonia, I was in. I wasn't in the shot that was even used, oh. but I was in that suit all day for a day. That that's, oh, that's the best terrible. part. Of, yeah, when you're in a suit all day, you're sweating through it, and then they don't even use it. That's that's always the best. <laughs> um, so, oh, let me see where I'm at here. Okay, uh, you're rehearsing. You you get all this stuff down. You go to film. Describe some of the things that might go wrong on a day. Like what's the weirdest thing that ever happened to screw up a shot? Well, the shorter list be, would the shorter list would be the things that went right. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> we had we had more teething problems, obviously, in the first movie than in the second movie. Between the first and second movie, they had figured out some things and solved some of the issues with technology or a different approach, uh, so that. Things went more smoothly in the second movie. In the first movie, we had, well, we didn't have, but we had foisted upon us a phrase that sent chills down all of our spines called turtle downtime. Oh. And that was whenever, in a crucial moment in a scene, if a head would break down, then that was turtle downtime and the stopwatches began and it didn't, oh, and the stopwatches didn't didn't cease until turtle downtime was finished and we could shoot again so all of that evidently was entered into a ledger and they settled up after after the fact but yeah mm. uh, the pressure was pretty pretty tight on the first film in the second by the time we'd done the second film a our process had, had become streamlined and better all the way around and B they understood their the process better too they meaning production, and they didn't get so panicky about stuff that they might have done on the first movie. Gotcha. Steve Barron had mentioned uh, shooting near an airfield at one point and the radio towers messing with the heads. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, well, uh, we had two ways of doing shots in the suits uh, animatronically. One was direct cable for a close up shot, they would just come up and stick the cable up your butt, oh. theoretically. <laughs> and, uh, and that would be a direct connection and therefore much more stable. But when you were unconnected by cable, you were on radio frequency, then you were at the mercy of any other radio frequencies in the air. And at that time, because we were close to the airport, a lot of frequencies, depending on the time of day and, and the amount of traffic they had, their signals would interfere with our signals and the faces would do the strangest thing. <laughs> I can only imagine. I, I want to see footage of that so yeah. badly. Adam, that answer well, is one of... Actually, some of those shots actually made it into the movie because really? we had nothing else. Oh, <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, oh yeah. we have to they're, go back they're... through and figure out which shots now. I think Donnie using a straw has to be one of them. <laughs> there, there, there are a few, and, and usually you can tell them by the somewhat erratic jiggering and jolting that goes on in the lips particularly, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, we'll have to go look for those. That answers a question, too, because, Adam, in the first season, we had talked about how they controlled these. And I think you were adamant they had to be cabled. And I was like, no, man, there's no cables. So now we know we were both right. Yeah, because I kept saying that they had to be cables because radio controls at the time were so unpredictable. And that's why we did close-ups cabled. Yeah. Uh, so I was, ha I was half right. <laughs> they, wanted, they, wanted the best, they wanted the best chance of getting a clean take. And so for a close-up, they would plug you in. That makes sense. Um, 
So you mentioned getting some martial arts training. Chris you're, is a, not only our resident army brat, but is also a resident martial artist. Uh, Chris uh-huh. has been the uh, the guy who analyzes all of the fight scenes. So I'm, I'm going to pass this over to Chris for a minute. Chris, do you have any questions about uh, the training or the weapon use that you want to ask? Sure. I mean, like, so um, I, I imagine, like, when you got started, uh, did they, they they started you off without the suit, right? Like, uh, did they sort of give you some basics and, like, how— how did how did your experience with nunchucks go? <laughs> okay, yeah, painfully. Uh, <laughs> let me say that uh, right at the right at the top. Uh, yeah, uh, the six months training that was the concentrated training, by the way, it was like three four times a week uh, with our sensei in sensei in New York. Uh, was just to do that because of the four of us, the only one who had any martial arts training was Dave Foreman. He was a stunt guy, a British stunt guy, and he had that training. We didn't. I mean, all three of us had dabbled in something here or there along the way prior to that, but nothing formal. So we had these intense months with our sensei in which we had group training days where we would all come in and we would work on uh, uh, basics and then work on basic fight choreography moves and develop those. And then we had our individual training days in which we would focus on particular uh, necessities for our character and our particular weapon. And so that's when, when I was introduced to the Chucks. Uh, the, the first pair that I had in class with Sensei were um, this lovely pair with foam rubber on them. Of course. Really nice. And, and I was whacking the crap out of myself and saying, oh, well, that's not so bad. And then about a a week into this process, uh, I get a package from production and it says, here are your rehearsal chucks. Oh, cool. Well, they're wood. Uh, Okay. I thought, "Mm, all right, maybe this is jumping into the deep end. Maybe that's the philosophy here. So I started rehearsing, (laughs) trying to rehearse with these things and just beating the hell out of myself. I had welts all over me. And uh, about two or three weeks later, Another package shows up with these lovely rehearsal chucks in foam rubber. <laughs> and I, oh, oh, okay. That's a, I see. So there was there was some mix up in somebody's got a sense of humor somewhere. What a clever <laughs> trick that was. Yeah, yeah, what a clever trick. So I, I beat myself to death for about three weeks, and then I just beat myself slightly to death. So apart from like uh, on your individual training, apart from doing the chucks and like learning how to use Michelangelo's weapon, you said that there was something about like uh, like bits for the character in particular. What were what were some of the sort of like stylistic or, or techniques uh, that were particular to Michelangelo that they had you go through? Well, for Mikey, because of the nature of, of, of the character, you wanted to have some things that reflected his flippant side, his, his, his more fun side. Mm-hmm. So some of the stuff that I knew that I was going to want to do during the, the filming, having you know discussed these items with Stephen, of course, uh, some of the things that I had planned to do would be enhanced by knowing better how to do a martial arts move that would blend into it or come out of it, something like that. So that's the kind of stuff that I concentrated on. And, and that actually led us to the freedom when we had the restrictions of the second movie, as far as the weapons are, were concerned, to come up with things like combat cold cuts because they wouldn't <laughs> let us use them. So we had to come up with our, other ideas. How mm. that hasn't been on a T-shirt yet, I'll never know. I don't know. I thought that was right up there with not the mama, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, that one made it on some T-shirts. 
Scott, I think we can make that happen. Yeah, I think we might have to. I think we might have to make a T-shirt and then send you one. Okay, I would wear that. Oh man. Yeah, and that was one of the, that was definitely one of those things that like uh, I mean we discussed it when we talked about that minute, but like I ever since that that point in that movie, I'm just like, why can't I find any sausage links joined together by a little bit of rope? <laughs> yeah, you've ruined it for all of us, is what happened. <laughs> and so so um, so a lot of the, uh, so so most of the training was done outside of the suit. Yeah, uh, the initial training. Now, of course, once we were filming, the process then. Uh, I'm sorry, are we at that point to talk about that? Sure. <laughs> sure. Sure, okay. The process then was slightly different. I mean, of course, we had re- our, our usual routine was rehearse the scene uh, whenever we could out of the suit. Sometimes we didn't have that luxury, so you would rehearse in, in half-dress, what we called turtle-ready, which was your, your, your basic, uh, the leggings, the... Uh, Across the shoulders piece, not the not the wrap, but the shoulder straps, and your sometimes your feet, mm. and then with the the battery pack on your back. Uh, in the second movie, in the first movie, it was the whole uh, the whole uh, frame on the back, and that's how we would rehearse the scene initially. Then we would go to camera ready, no head, <coughs> do the scene again that way. Because then we had to zone in on, on our visual markings. Because remember, we had very, very little vision once we put the head on. So we had to pick spots that we knew that we could see at that moment in the scene. So we would find uh, places on the set, on, the, on, the, on the, uh, the, the sound stage, depending on where you were looking and such like that, that we could see through the little tiny pinholes under our bandanas. <laughs> and that's how we knew we had the right eye line for that moment. Wow. And then we would put the head on and do the whole thing again. Sometimes we would have that luxury. Sometimes we would just put the head on and shoot it. Mm. So, okay, but but uh, but so you learn how to use nunchucks first without the the suit on. How 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 much more difficult was it to to like actually swing around a pair of nunchucks when instead of having five you know four fingers and a thumb, you've got like two giant fingery thummy thumbs and a big I, thumb. I, I, I needed to add. add they also sent us, along with the second pair of proper chucks, they also sent a pair of hands so that I could ah. start using, uh, wearing the yeah. hands when I would do the chucks. And so I, wow, that's, see, like, I, I don't like nunchucks. They're, they're one of my least favorite things, but I can't imagine, like, trying to use them with, uh, like, I, I take it, it's the two fingers, you know, your two fingers together, like, for, for each finger. Yeah, oh, it's like that's... it's like the Vulcan salute. I was yeah. gonna say you must be really good at the Vulcan salute. <laughs> I was good. I was good beforehand, but I got better. <laughs> um, so you mentioned that looking through the pinholes and the eyepieces, and I have to ask, how weird was that when you're? This is the only thing you can see through, and you have to interact with another actor, like uh, uh, like Judith Hogue or Paige Turco or, or any of those guys, and you can't really look them in the eye, I'm assuming. You, are you looking, like, at their jaw? <laughs> You're looking at different things. Some, uh, some of the times, all you could see was when the mouth happened to come open. And so you would see something down in front of you at about a, a 45, 50-degree angle. And you'd hmm. see a little patch of the ground there. So what, for example, if I was turning to you as Mikey, what I would see through the mouth would be 
an arc on the floor. So I would find two points on that floor that I could see when I was turning my head that would tell me I'm turning my head in the right plane and I'm being in the right position to be looking at you. Okay. So that's the kind of things we had to work out. If you had the luxury, I call it the luxury, of seeing out the two uh, pinholes, then you were looking straight ahead. And then you usually had, uh, depending on the, the action around you, you usually had a field of vision of about 100 degrees side to side. Okay. If you were looking out, out, the, out the pinholes. But again, it was only for what's right in front of you because there's no peripheral vision there. It's just that little hole in front of you. So it was difficult, but we, we learned, well, I mean, cliche, but we used the force all the time. Once we set down our physical patterns and learned them <laughs> in our own head, then you could repeat them. Once you could repeat them, then your puppeteer could fine-tune you, saying that, oh, you were slightly, like, slightly to the left on that first look, and you'd know bring it back to the right of the gotcha. head. So you would adjust as you go along. God, this, it just must have been the most difficult movie shoot in the history of movies. That seems so hard. Um, I'm, I'm having flashbacks of... of oh. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, I was just saying, I'm having flashbacks of my own puppetry experience. I actually said this on the show uh, earlier this season. Uh, our my, The puppet director of the project I worked on used to say there's three Ps in puppetry. Pain, perspiration, and partial blindness. Oh, those work, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We had other variations on that theme, but yeah, that pretty much sums it up. <laughs> so you worked on the first two Turtle films. You didn't work on the third one, correct? No, no. Uh, that was unfortunately a political uh, d- double dealing. Uh, there's a fellow, I don't even know if he's still around anymore, uh, by the name of Eric Allard. He had a, he had a, a, a sex shop here for, for a number of years. And um, I, did, I have... No corroborating evidence, but I've been told by at least half a dozen different people who would know that at one point he arranged to have what turned out to be one of my Mikey heads stolen from the creature shop. Oh, now, this oh is my all, gosh. This, mm. is, this is all what I've been told. I have no corroboration. Like this I said, is this, right. This is, this is not coming this, from you. This is coming from somewhere else. This uh-huh. is coming from, from uh, let's say, the Internet. Why okay. Yeah. <laughs> Allegedly. Allegedly, yes, as, as Colbert always says. So supposedly <clears throat> he had it stolen so that he could reverse engineer. Come to where we're shooting uh, dinosaurs. I think we're in our second season at that point. No, first <laughs> season. And uh, Brian Henson comes to me and Leaf because he's on the show too. Mm-hmm. He says, do you guys mind if I put you together in, in the package? that I'm putting together for a golden harvest for turtles three. And we said, no, absolutely not. Go right ahead. So come to find out that we lose the gig. Uh, Henson's didn't get the gig that Eric Allard gets the gig. And he comes in with almost the exact same technology and at half the price. So we lost that gig. And Hmm. I've, Personally, I mean, I've had fans say to me over the years that the Turtles 3 suffered because of that. You know, I, I, I think the Turtle 3 puppets are noticeably different. I think it's interesting that you mentioned a Mikey head was stolen because I've always thought that Turtles 3 Mikey is the only one that looks remotely like the other two movies version of the Turtles. There you go. 
and that's uh, the reason why. But that's just me, <laughs> allegedly. Wow, hot allegedly. gossip today on TMNT Minute. Yeah. Um, wow, yeah, I, I had never heard that. So you were working pretty much for the Henson Company in general, yes? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, once, once they... Once we were actually, it was while we were shooting the first movie. Jim came to me during the first movie, uh, before just before we lost him. God, yeah, God bless him. Um, and he said that he had this idea for a TV show that he would wanted to do with ABC and Disney, and that uh, he was interested in having me get be involved. And I thought, oh, well, that sounds really cool. And then when he died which just crushed everybody. Uh, and I thought, yeah. okay, well, forget that idea. That's not going to happen. But while we were shooting the second movie, because they had already booked me to come back, back to that, uh, Brian and Martin Baker, who was one of the, uh, the top echelon of, of Henson's and the London shop, came to me and said, uh, we're going to go ahead with the, the, the dinosaur show, and we'd like you to be uh, involved. So that's uh, why I went out and did the initial successful episodes of that. And you were Charlene in that, right? I started out, I was going to be the utility dinosaur. I had a female suit and a male suit, and oh. I was going to do all, all of the characters that were required, which would turn out to be many, many. Uh, <laughs> we got into the first episode. Yeah, we were shooting the first episode, and it became uh, apparent that there was an issue with the actor who was performing Charlene at the time. And um, at one thing led to another, and Brian came to me and said, uh, we're going to put you in Charlene. Uh, we're going to get somebody else to cover your female dinosaur, and you'll still do the male dinosaur, which turned out to be primarily Sid Turtlepuss, but uh, also he had a lot of different variations as well. I love and that that's show. why I, that's how I got into uh, being Charlene. And Leif Tilden was in that show. He was Robbie, right? Yes, he was my brother, Robbie. That's awesome. <laughs> I haven't watched that show in a long time, and I really—I don't know if it's on Netflix, but if it's not, it needs to it, be. I don't think it is, but every once in a while I go on YouTube and watch, like, uh, the last, I don't know, the last five or ten minutes of the last episode and cry. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, it made me cry for many reasons, too, yeah. <laughs> I always like the uh, the the drugs episode on the dinosaurs is probably one of the best <laughs> yeah. like drug PSA episodes of a show ever recorded. It's so good. We had so much fun with that show. I'm I'm very very proud of that show. It was way ahead of its time. It really was from technology to 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 concept. It was just way ahead of its time. Um, and it you was, could never make although, a TV show like that now. No one would put money on a show like that now. Not a chance. Unfortunately, it would be great, but yeah. I don't think you're going to yeah. find a studio to do it. So that was really a gem in no. its time. Um, and we were all lined up to do a feature film at the end of the uh, the fourth season, really? and uh, they dropped the ball. Yeah, ah. mm. we had everything set. We were saving all the suits, saving all the sets. They had a script that was in development, and then uh, egos got in the way. Evidently, well, listen, way. reboot. Is a very did, popular word these days. <laughs> I'm just gonna put it out there. Did did uh, was was the, the the series finale like settled before the movie fell apart, or I mean, w did they did they go with the finale that they went with because the movie wasn't going to happen, or was there a plan to have a movie after the world ended? No, I think Michael and Bob did exactly what they wanted to and had wanted to do all along. Yeah. 
It was it was it was funky, but it was cool. I thought it was. Oh yeah. It was so it was so unique that I thought you know this this is going to be more memorable because of it. It is. That's like uh, that that one. Uh, that's one of the few se- uh, series finales from childhood that really sticks with me. There's a lot of things that I watched as a kid where I could not, for the life of me, uh, tell anyone what the last episode was about. But that one, I was just like, oh, oof. Yeah, a lot of people feel the same way too. Yeah. Um. So you you also were on Star Trek for what an episode or two? You were a a, a Ferengi. Uh, I did. I did one. Yes, I did. I did one episode as a Ferengi, which is really cool. I I had. Uh, a lovely scene with uh, with uh, Patrick Stewart and an old buddy of mine, Lee Aronson, who uh, was actually uh, playing a Ferengi who was my commander. I was second in command, and I end up taking the the dagger of of authority from him from him during the scene uh, with Patrick Stewart. So it was really cool. The best thing about, I mean, I loved everything about it, but the, the coolest thing about it was the three hours of makeup. <laughs> <laughs> right, and not a giant 400-pound suit. <laughs> yeah, that, but although they, 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 the balance was there because they gave me uh, upper and lower teeth that ended up puncturing uh, the inside ugh. of my mouth. <laughs> he said, yeah, if you have dialogue, you have to have uppers and lowers. And boy, oh boy, that was an experience. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine. Um, Rachel. Yes. You're still there? Yes, I'm still here. <laughs> we you're, do have a, a woman on this show. <laughs> you're mesmerized by all of this. Rachel, yes. do you have any questions or anything you want to know? Uh, I know I'm putting you any- on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> was there any one specific costume that was more difficult than uh, any other costume? Like, is there one that you would say is the worst costume that you've had to wear? That I've had to wear or that I've experienced somebody else wearing? How about both? <laughs> okay, all right, okay. Uh, that, I, that I've experienced somebody else wearing the most thankless suit I've ever seen was the T-Rex suit in uh, Teddy Rex that, mm. that a dear, dear friend, Pons Marr, who was also with us on Dinosaurs, ah. uh, he had to wear. Um, and it was tough. That was a nasty, nasty suit from conception to execution. As far as my own personal, let's see, the worst, wow, <laughs> there's a list. Um, <laughs> I, guess, I guess the most uncomfortable suit of them all for me was um, Charlene. Mm. What made yeah, it so once, particularly once uncomfortable? she got her tail. Hmm? Sorry? Oh, I was, you were just about to answer my question. I was going to say, what was it that made it so uncomfortable? Once she got her tail, she got her tail, I think, three or four episodes into the, the run of the show. Uh, the script called for her to develop and become a, a, young, a young girl. <laughs> she got her tail. Well, once she got her tail, before then I had this little stub of a tail. And I could zip around the kitchen, no problem. Once I got a tail, I was smashing into everything. Every time I turned around, I was hitting something. I go, what the heck? So that took a little adjusting. And because of the... In initial contacts that I wasn't expecting, it was kind of painful. So that was the the most difficult suit. Once I got accustomed to it, there wasn't so much anymore. But yeah, initially that one. Mm. All right, um, Rachel, good question. Oh, thank you. Um, along that <laughs> same line, if so, you're on two turtles movies. Um, 
how would you rate your experience on both of them? Let's start with the 1990 film and tell us your sort of overall impression on that, and then let's move to Turtles 2. Well, obviously, the, the first movie changed my life. It changed what I had planned for my life, and it changed what I did with my life. Um, the second movie, the second movie was fun, and that that's pretty much the bottom line with it. I mean, it was hard, hard work, as hard if not harder than the first movie because of what we were doing in the second movie. But it was all built around the, the premise of, hey, we did this once already, and it worked out pretty well, so let's just enjoy ourselves. And so we did a lot of that. Um, that would be my general impressions. The first one was the most true to the, to the piece and the most intense and a whole new experience. And like I say, totally changed my life. And the second one was, okay, this is going to be a a bumpy road, but let's have some fun while we're doing it. So how did you feel about the change to the more cartoon style of uh, of movie that the second one was? It was it was very uh, we discussed that it's clearly aimed at a different audience. The first one is sort of aimed at like those hardcore like 80s independent comic collectors whereas Turtles 2 is aimed at this generation that's now had a couple years of this humongously popular cartoon show on. How did you personally exactly. feel about that transition? Uh, well, it was a t- it was a double-edged sword. In one way, uh, it was a disappointment because, like I say, the first movie had the the, the atmosphere, the the, the, the gravitas that uh, I think Kevin and Peter wanted, and therefore it was a more successful rendering of the piece, as far as I'm concerned. The second movie, it was aimed at a younger audience. Uh, we were restricted in what we could show in a lot of ways, and therefore it became a more, exactly what you say, Saturday morning animation version of the Turtles, more in line with what more of the audience had already been exposed to. Just a very good point that you make. So they were both uh, wonderful monuments in my, mileposts in my lifetime, but one was a lot more satisfying creatively than the other, but the other one kept the franchise going, so yeah. that was the important thing. And how cool was Vanilla Ice? <laughs> <laughs> I refuse. <laughs> you don't no, still you like do the dance moves at home in your free time? That's fair. Not a chance. Wait, did you uh, have to do fair. the dance moves in the suit? Is that you? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh my yeah. God. Oh, that's, that's awesome. awesome. If, you, if you look at the documentary, there's a clip of, clip of us out of suit. Uh, rehearsing the choreography on the stage. Is that the Turtle Power <laughs> documentary? Yeah, the uh, Behind the Shells, I think. Oh, okay, yeah, that one. All right, the gotcha. Yeah, there's a clip of us from when, when we were rehearsing out of the suit, so you'll see we're actually doing the choreography. And, of course, that, that was right up my alley with my background. Right. So I was happy for that. What I didn't like was that he was a different guy then than he is now. He's a yeah. much... He's much more of a human being now than he was at that time. Oh well, very young, he was had a lot of money thrown at him, and he was very self-impressed. And as a result, uh, not all of us had a favorable impression of him at that time. Well, but, like I said, he, we, he, uh, he's come a long way since then too. We spoke to John Dupre, the the composer of the films, and he uh, had. I think it was he who had mentioned. Was it him or was it Fran? I think it might have been Francois Chow. I think it was Francois Chow. We spoke to him. Uh, mentioned that the the set had a particular uh, 
odor for the couple of days that Mr. Ice was in town. <laughs> well, that didn't bother me at all. I mean, I was inside the suit going, hey, hey, did you bring enough for everybody? <laughs> That's such well, that, a Mikey that, thing. That confirms the theory I've always had about Mikey. I'll take it. <laughs> Absolutely. I was I was typecast in that regard, yes. So I want to ask a question about that specifically. We had just watched a minute in Turtles 2 where Tatsu throws the smoke bomb <laughs> and it, in the TGRI lab, and it dawns on me for uh-huh. the first time that this is just a giant pot joke. Like the first turtle we see is Mikey, and he's like rubbing his eyes and like hacking and through this green smoke, and I'm like, oh, my God, this is this is a weed joke, isn't it? <laughs> no, you guys. You guys are reading way too much. Into are we? <laughs> are you telling me that a podcast that critically analyzes one minute of a film every day is going a little too deep? No, sir. It's I kind, don't it's believe. It's kind you. of our job. <laughs> that could never possibly could never happen. Sure, no, 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 never. <laughs> no, it, it literally was. I mean, the, the biggest hook at that moment, which we always got a kick out of, was Tatsu saying, "Ninja Magics." so some of your co-stars you got to work with a lot of interesting people in these movies i I mean you had two different shredder shredders you had james saito and francois chow you had two different aprils you had uh page turco and judith hogue casey jones elias Codias. you had uh toshishiro obata Uh, any fond memories of these guys any fun stories that you could share or how many of them do you still keep in touch with well, uh, actually, fond memories of all of them in one way or another. Uh, I am still in touch with uh, with Judith. Uh, she actually we bumped into one another a couple times on the conventions uh, over the last couple of years. Um, I haven't seen Paige in a long while, although I have seen her uh, in a recent interview, recent as within the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, had a card from David. Years ago, oh, David Warner. He was, lo- he was lovely. Uh, he seems it. The um, Toshiro and, the, and those guys less because I didn't have much context with them prior, so therefore there was no particular context afterwards other than the film. And as you know, that's a very transient thing right. in most cases. Uh, but yeah, uh, of course, maintained constant contact with uh, with the other three guys uh, lost some contact with Dave Foreman over the years, but that has been replaced uh, by contact with Mark Tasso. Um, the ones I have the most contact with, of course, uh, is Leaf, uh, mm-hmm. the most long-standing contact. Right. And Mac uh, just had a chance to see him again after a long, long time last year when I was in England. And, uh, that's pretty much it as far as uh, in touch with the folks from there. Awesome. Um, oh, man, I just had a thought pop into my head, and it just left. Anyone else have a question? <laughs> I had a question about nunchucks specifically. Uh, did you did you ever keep up with it? Do you ever pick up the checks every now and again? <laughs> Why would I do? Why would I do that? <laughs> Not Good even answer. the foam padded ones. I, I know. I, I have. I have pain problems and psyche problems, like anybody. But I don't need to be beating the crap out of myself. <laughs> yeah. as, as, I, as, as I have said many times, and will maintain until the day I die, nunchucks are the worst weapon. <laughs> they really are. They really are. Even when they're sitting there on the table, you know they're going to hurt you. So therefore, the anticipation <laughs> is just as painful as the actual event. Um, we'll, we'll get to wrapping it up. I just have a couple more things I'm curious about. So the, the movie comes out, the first movie, 
what is your experience seeing it for the first time? How did you see it? Was there a premiere? Like, walk us through that. Yeah, we had a premiere in, uh, did we do the red carpet? At the, yeah, I guess I guess we did the, no, that was the second one. Sorry. The first one, we had a premiere in Westwood. And then there was a premiere in New York that uh, I went back for uh, as well. The second movie, we had a premiere at the El Cap, I think it was. <coughs> Maybe, maybe it wasn't the LCAP, but it was something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, in both instances, they were fun, happy events, usually on a Saturday morning. <laughs> Excellent. As turtles should be, of course. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They know their audience. Um, and uh, it, was always, it, it was always kind of funny because you know how, how kids will suspend disbelief when, they, when they, they'll talk to a disembodied head just as well as the head on your body. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Uh, which, is, which is great, and that's, that's what you want. Well, you know, to go to these screenings, these, these gala events, as it were, and have the, the announcer going, and here's Miss Lentithy, Michelangelo, and the kids going, what? He's huh? <laughs> <laughs> not green at all. He, he doesn't look like a turtle. What the hell? He's got a mustache. What the hell? So... <laughs> yeah, it was always a kind of a yin yang situation at those. Um, what was it like just seeing the finished product itself? Like, what what was your first impression seeing all that hard work finally pay off on a screen? Well, very very satisfying in both cases for obviously slightly different reasons, but yeah, uh, I I was really pleased with our the results of our efforts in both cases. I was. Hugely pleased with the first one, like I say, tone and all of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but still, just as pleased with the second one because, like I say, it uh, it means that the thing was going to continue on. Amazing. Um, and the last question I have: uh, What kind of turtley things did you get to keep over the years? Do you have any mementos uh, from the set? I I I, I was given a, a number of things, which was great. Unfortunately, all of the latex has, has disintegrated, as you know. Oh, sure. Over time, that, that all just crumbles away. Uh, what I still have are, I've given a bunch of stuff away to charity auctions and stuff, mm-hmm. too, over the years. But I have retained my hero pair of chucks. Um, awesome. That's great. And yes. Those, uh, I've given everything away except the actual last pair that I had and used the most, so that. <laughs> That one I'm keeping, uh, and I have my original with all of the inserts script. I had two other shooting scripts that I again gave away to auctions over the years, but I kept my original working day day to day script because it had all of the insert pages stuck in oh, it, just about an inch an inch thicker than regular script in because it has all the other stuff crammed into it and all my notes in the liners and stuff like that. Good Lord. You should so publish that two, and sell it. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. yeah those, are the, those are the two main things that I've kept uh, that I've been able to keep. Incredible. Uh, those nunchucks though, like that's one of those, that's one of those items. Like that's, that's that'll such, end up in the Smithsonian. That's yeah. such a thing that's just grabbed out of out of pop culture, and you get to just hold those. And that's that's <laughs> I'm jealous as hell. That's awesome. <laughs> like as a hardcore collector, like that's nuts. That uh, it's it's good to know that they're still in good hands, though. Like that's yeah. Well. Uh, yeah those, those two those two items will remain safe. I'm I'm sorry you missed it. I just recently turned over a whole bunch of stuff that I still had, including some of the practice chucks and such. 
for a, a friend of mine uh, to help finance a film that he was making that uh, with that kind of chipped in a little bit for him to be yeah. able to complete it. Well, we've we've I, I've happened to find a, there's a collector on Instagram who's who's managed to acquire a few of the things that you've either auctioned off or, or given away, and some of this it's, it's amazing, and, and other people too. It's not just your stuff. I don't want to make it sound like he's creeping on you or anything, but um, <laughs> it's it's amazing the quality of some of the stuff that that is preserved from those movies. Like this movie was especially the first one. It kind of it was born and it kind of went away for a while. And I would say over the last five or six years, people have sort of been rediscovering it, and it's become like this really revered piece of like independent comic book related film. Uh, I put it up on par with like the the first Batman movie. It's I said all last season. This movie is way better than it ever should have been. From the script to the acting to the puppeteering Good work, to the man. music, like and you, and yeah, I would agree with you. Yeah, because everybody wanted so much to make it. A really good piece, and so I will much. I will say that many times this season, as we look at Turtles Two, we keep saying, "Man, the body work on Michelangelo is just fantastic." Thank <laughs> you, <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank and if you, you don't believe us, you can listen. I'm not just lying to you, and that's the God's honest truth. <laughs> thank you. I appreciate that. I, I put a lot of work into it. In fact, you mentioned one of the little bits that I thought, "Oh, I got to tell them about that." You mentioned in one of your um, minutes. Um, the scene where we're sitting around April's apartment in, in the ooze, and uh, and I and I bite my candy bar at, yes. uh, at rat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I I just a little side note. You can side you can put this away because this was another little piece. This is the kind of details that go nuts over. I had worked it out so that I had a false bottom in in the candy bar wrapper, and I had an inch and a half of the bar stuck up, up above my fingers. And I had it set up just right so that as I did the motion of biting off the bite at Raphael, I loosened my grip just enough so that the bar would slide down to the stopper so it looked like it took a bite out of the bar. Oh, that's great. That 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 confirms another one of my theories that I I kept saying, remember, it didn't look to me like a giant candy bar. It was more he was holding it right at the top of the wrapper. (laughs) Was it a Butterfinger? It looked like a Butterfinger. It was a Butterfinger, but they couldn't use the Butterfinger yes. logo, obviously. It became something else. I feel so much validation now. Uh, I love this vindication. Like, yeah. Like, it's it's those details that drive us nuts as <laughs> as people who do what we do. Like, when you can't find something, it's just... Okay. It's, I, I'm sorry. I don't mean to cut you off, Adam, but something just occurred to me. Maybe we can finally get uh, a, 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 a different perspective on this. In the first movie, did you ever notice creepily stashed on the set somewhere, maybe in a phone booth or on a coffee table, just an obscene amount of little rubber dominoes, uh, dominoes, noid figurines? <laughs> not, uh, not in the first film, although I would have expected to see it in the first They're film. They're uh, all uh, over. There were a couple of some- there are a couple of very blatant placings, that's for sure, yeah. They just, we counted, I think, five of them in that first movie, like, just stuck around the turtle's lair, and we had never seen them before. I was just curious about that. I, no, those were, those were unbeknownst to me, because as you remember, I had little tiny holes that I was looking out of. No, that's right, you couldn't see anything. Half, half the time, if we, were, if we weren't rehearsing in there, I, I didn't know what the hell was in there. 
Yeah, it must have been really nice to see the finished movie and be like, oh, that's what the set looked like. <laughs> that's that's what my co stars look like. like a much bigger sewer than I remembered it being. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. I, any final questions before we wrap this up? Rachel, Chris, anybody? I'm, I've, I've, I'm got, good, I've got one. Okay. Okay. All right. And we've asked this to everybody. And this is very important. So feel free to take your time. What is your favorite kind of pizza? Oh, uh, you're going to be so disappointed. You'd be surprised. All right. All right. Banana peppers and mushrooms. All right. Uh, I'll take that. I, I'm, a, I'm a mushroom That's guy. unique. That's yeah. good. I'll take that. I Listen, like it. I won't. I don't want to. I don't want to say anything bad about it. You didn't say pineapple. You didn't say pineapple. I was sweating. I was like, he's going to say pineapple like everybody else has. Like Kevin Eastman said pineapple. Yeah. Like you wouldn't expect it, but okay. All right. Pineapple is the Tom Waits of pizza topping. You either love it or you can't stand it. Yeah. I've tried the odd Hawaiian pizza over the years, and it never brings me to Hawaii. It doesn't feel very Hawaiian. It's really hard to find one in Hawaii, actually, I'm sure. (laughs) And for good reason. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Mr. Michelin Sisti, thank you so much for hanging out with us and talking. This has just been a blast. If you ever want to come back on and talk about more turtle stuff, (laughs) let us know, because this has just been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. I appreciate it. And uh, do send me a copy of this because I oh, like to hear it. We absolutely will. Oh, is there anything that you want to, uh, anything you've been working on or anything that you're into currently that you want to tell us about or tell the audience about or any other appearances you're going to be making? Uh, we're hoping and have been praying that something will pop up with Muppets uh, after having some things pulled out from under us. So we're hoping. Oh. Uh, and that now, just kind of playing it by ear at this point. All right. Well, if you ever find yourself in New York City, you know, shoot us an email. I've got a standing offer from John Dupre to have lunch. And I think between you and me and him and Adam playing bass and Chris playing guitar and Rachel's lovely singing <laughs> voice, I think we've got a good shot at a, a really solid band here. So now, now that's a hit record. We can tour in the half shell, yes. I there you go. That. Surely nothing wrong could happen with that. <laughs> nothing at all, no. All right. All right, guys. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you very much, sir. Have a good evening. And uh, for the rest of you guys at home, thank you for tuning in and listening to this special interview for Chris and Adam and Rachel and Mr. Michel and Sisti. We will say goodbye, everybody. Bye. 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 Cowabunga!